of a welcome. I want to wish everyone a good morning to those that are here and those that are watching. Thank you, by the way, worship team and all those who set up everything for the service here today. We uh, do appreciate all of your giftedness, and we thank you for giving us the gospel in song. Also, thanks, Tom, for the lovely prayers and how God uses you to minister to us in that way. Well, today we are continuing on, as you can see, in Matthew chapter 10. Now, I want you to remember that last time I had mentioned that much of Matthew 10 is really about Jesus advising his followers as to what we can expect in these last days as we go out to evangelize. Now, today we're going to learn that the key issue, if we want to learn to live a faithful life, is that we would learn to fear God rather than men. The fear of man will always put us on a trajectory of failure in this life. But when we learn to fear God, that will always lead to faith and obedience. So today, we're going to learn that if we fear God, we really will be those who end up confessing Christ all the days of our life. And of course, that is the goal of our Christian walk. Now, I want to begin here in Matthew 10, 24 through 25, where Jesus is going to remind us as followers that we should not expect better treatment than he received at the hands of the world. Notice he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Now, dear ones, I want you to first notice that we have this general statement or principle that Jesus gives us that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. And that should be self-evident. And yet it should also cause reflection in each of us to really ask ourselves, am I expecting to be in any way better than my master or to receive better treatment than my teacher and master, the Lord Jesus Christ? And the obvious answer to that should be no. Now, notice here the term disciple, the mathetes, and the doulos, the slave, are being interchangeably used for the follower. But they each paint a different nuance. The disciple focuses on the nuance of the believer wanting to emulate the doctrine and deed of their teacher. Whereas the slave, the doulos, emphasizes the need for every single believer to give absolute allegiance to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, when we go out into the world, we're going to have two types of people. Everyone is going to serve somebody. And you're either going to serve something or someone in the creation, or you're going to worship and serve the creator, the Lord Jesus. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24, I want to remind us just four chapters ago, of some of the wisdom regarding this that we learned from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Matthew 6.24 relates to this very topic, this idea of allegiance to only one master. Matthew 6.24, Jesus had said there, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. At the end of the day, every single human being is going to serve either something in the creation or the creator. And at this point in the narrative, what Jesus is doing is he's stating this principle to get us to think about 
what our treatment will be like as we choose to serve Christ alone. Now, as we get to verse 25, notice he starts to become more specific. He says, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. The phrase there, the term enough, is architos, and it literally can be rendered, it is sufficient. It is sufficient for us, the disciple, to become like the teacher in our doctrine indeed, but also in our expectation of suffering. If he suffered, we're not going to get better treatment. We're going to have the same type of treatment. It is sufficient that we be like him. We don't have to exceed him, and we will not exceed him in any way. Now, notice here, it says, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Dear ones, the household here, of course, is a reference to the church. The they is a reference to the unbelievers, particularly here, the unbelieving Jewish leadership. And notice, what did they label the head of the house? That is Christ, who's head of the church. Well, they called him Beelzebul. Now, the term Beelzebul, I think here, is certainly a slang for Satan himself. Now, what, what is the etymology of that term Beelzebul? Well, I want you to know that we know it's slang for Satan because earlier in Matthew 9.34, remember, Jesus had cast out the demon. And what did the leadership of Israel say? Well, this is a work of God. No, they said, well, Jesus does this by the power of the ruler of the demons. Well, who is that? It's Beelzebul. If you fast forward, just jot this down to Matthew 12, 24. Jesus again will cast out demons, and the Pharisees say he does it by the power of Beelzebul. Now, what is the etymology of that term, Beelzebul? Well, I think more than likely it probably comes from an old Philistine god, false god, small g, that they had worshipped, that the Jews had given a derogatory nickname called Beelzebub. And what Beelzebub was, was the lord of the flies. And so it was the Jewish way of mocking this false god that the Philistines had. Well, I think perhaps later Jews amended that, and instead of Beelzebub, it became Beelzebul, which literally means lord of the dung heap. And so they were saying, this is no lord at all. That was the mockery. But at Jesus' day, what we know, whatever the etymology was, we know that now it's shorthand for Satan. And so I want you to think about how the unbelieving world, what Jesus is saying is if they're going to call him Satan, how much more are they going to malign us? You know, many of you probably watched the news this past week. There was a primary in the United States. And I saw some left-wing commentators on MSNBC and another channel, ABC, that called evangelical Christians that had shown up Nazis. Well, the, what I looked at is, as I was studying this passage, I thought, well, there it is. If they called Jesus Satan, we should expect, as believers and followers of him, the exact same type of treatment, the same kind of slander. By the way, we as evangelical Christians pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Notice the left that supports Hamas doesn't seem to be having too many prayer meetings on Harvard for the peace of Jerusalem. You would think that those who are praying for the peace of Jerusalem would be the least to be the Nazis, and those who want the destruction of Jerusalem would have far more in keeping with the Nazis. But nonetheless, 
the slander will exist because the hatred of Jesus Christ is profound in the heart and mind of the unregenerate world. Now, as we continue on here, verses 26 through 27, Jesus reminds his followers not to pay any attention and to keep preaching because those who are misjudging us and maligning us are going to themselves be judged one day. Notice he says, Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Now, dear ones, notice here we have an inferential conjunction, therefore. What that means is Matthew is showing us Jesus is drawing an inference. And the inference is, in light of the fact that we're going to be maligned as Christ would, how should we act? Well, Jesus says, therefore, do not fear them. Okay, we are not to fear what man can do to us. We are not to fear what the world says of us. Why? Well, he gives us an explanatory for. He explains why we shouldn't fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What is that about? Well, that's about judgment. So as we are being maligned and hated, even if, in fact, the unbelieving world were able to hide those things from us, they are not hidden to the God who sees all things, the omniscient one who knows all things. And so this is about judgment that no matter what kind of malignment or hatred comes towards us as Christians, it will all be judged on the final day. I'm talking about the broad period of the day of the Lord. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 4, 5. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 is some some wisdom that we get from Paul that Bob had taught us some months ago. And I want to just reiterate what he had taught us there. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. As you're turning there, my theme I want you to see is this idea of Christ bringing to light that which is hidden. So again, the point is there's no way that the unbeliever is going to get away with anything. Now, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 4 was that you had Corinthian believers who were falsely accusing other Christians, including Paul, as they were judging their motives that they couldn't know. God alone is the heart knower. And so that's why Paul said, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts then each man's praise will come to him from God. When does that occur? Well, when the Lord returns. So ironically, it's the Lord Jesus who will know all that was concealed and all that was hidden. He'll make it known. And he will judge the unbelieving world for everything that they've done. Every single evil thing they've thought or every deed or action against you or me, that will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Paul says in Romans 12, we really can leave vengeance for God. That's his. So what are we to do? Well, notice verse 27, Jesus exhorts his followers what we should do. We can trust God for the judgment, but he says, what I tell you, which is the gospel, in the darkness speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear proclaim upon the rooftops. Notice the difference between the unregenerate and the believer. The unregenerate will have concealed and hidden evil motives, but you and I are to proclaim everything Christ gives openly, publicly. 
Dear brothers and sisters, Christianity is not a secret religion. You don't need a secret handshake, a secret decoder ring that you get through the mail. It is a public religion. When Jesus Christ came bodily, he taught bodily, he was crucified publicly, and he was resurrected publicly. He taught publicly, died publicly, was raised publicly, and you and I are to teach the doctrines of Christ publicly. That's what he's calling us to do. There's nothing to hide. We have nothing to fear. That's the idea. And so in verse 28 now, we get to the key issue. And the key issue is that we have to be those who settle in our hearts as followers of Christ that we're going to fear God and not man. Notice Matthew 10, 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Dear ones, notice first of all that you have this do not fear. That's an imperative. There are different moods in the Greek. There's an indicative mood, evocative mood. Well, here is an imperative mood. So the imperative means that this is indeed a command. So we are not to fear whom? Those who can kill the body. The those would refer to the unregenerate, and I'm not saying all the unregenerate want to kill us, but those who can and those who will, we are not to fear them. Why? Because all they can do is kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Uh, by the way, the term kill there sounds like you're killing someone when you say it in Greek, apokateno. It kind of sounds like something a, a gulag soldier might say, apokateno. It sounds bad, but remember, killing in the Bible does not mean any form of annihilation. It always means a separation. So the worst that humanity can do to us is that they can kill us, which separates our body and soul, but they can do nothing to the soul. So what the Bible teaches, I believe, remember the body here, soma, and the soul is the pasuke. I think that the Bible teaches something called dichotomy, that the human is built of two primary parts, the material, the body, and the immaterial, the soul. Now, some will say it's spirit and soul. I think they're used basically interchangeably. So the idea is that at death, you have a separation of body and soul. And for the believer, the soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven, and the body will end up being deposited normally into the ground. Now, let me give you some proof of that. How do we know the Bible teaches a separation of body and soul? Well, it's actually all over the place, but let me give you a couple of passages. Think about Luke 23, 43. That's where Jesus, remember, is on the cross, and next to him are these criminals who justly deserve the death they're receiving. But one of the criminals comes to faith, and they say to Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. Jesus says to that man in Luke 23, 43, he says, truly I say to you today, you're going to be with me in paradise. The very day that that man died, he was with the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden of God. That's what paradise means. Where is that? It's in the New Jerusalem. Well, how did that man go there if his body was buried into the ground? Well, because his soul went there. The immaterial portion of the human and it's a conscious existence, but yet it can't be affected by man. That's where he went. Let me give you another passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
In fact, in Philippians 1, 23-24, Paul says it's far better, and he wishes that he would be absent from the body, and yet for their sake he was going to be in the flesh. And so, yes, all over the Scriptures, there's a distinction between the body and the soul. The body is corruptible, but the soul will go on. Now, notice then, if we're not to fear those who can kill the body, who should we fear? Well, here you have another command, fear him. That's God. And by the way, Jesus is God. We should fear him. Why? Because he's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, the term destroy there, apolumi, does not mean annihilation. It means separation. And in this case, it's separation from God in hell, the lake of fire. Think of it this way. If someone said to you, hey, my car was destroyed in a crash, would you think that every, every molecular part of their car ceased to exist? No, you would simply know that through the accident, it was altered to the point where it was no longer functional. The idea of annihilation is a Buddhist and Eastern concept. The idea of death in the Bible is separation. And so what we're reading about is a what's called the second death in Revelation, chapter 20, verse 15, where every single believer is going to be given a resurrection. But here, it's also for the unbeliever, they're going to be given a resurrection to be thrown into hell. So here's what I want you to think about. Every person's going to have a resurrection. The believer is going to be reunited to their soul to be with the Lord, to reign on the earth and have the new heavens, the new Jerusalem forevermore. But the unbeliever is going to be raised, body and soul, to be thrown in the lake of fire. That's why we should fear Jesus. Don't fear man, fear Jesus. So what I'm going to show you in our applications is that all of life is ultimately determined by whom you fear. If you fear God, you're going to serve him. But if you fear man, you'll live to serve them. And one leads to eternal life. The other leads to eternal destruction and disappointment. Now, as we continue on here in verses 19 through 31, Jesus instructs us that we can trust God, that he will care for us not only now, but always. Notice, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Now notice here Jesus' rhetorical question, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? What's the obvious answer? Well, of course they are, they're cheap. Uh, In our vernacular, we'd say they're a dime a dozen. And yet notice he says, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The heavenly father sovereignly controls the life of the little sparrow. All of the birds that you've ever seen in your life, not one of them has ever fallen without the Lord's sovereign approval. And so the reason Jesus is saying this is to give us the lesser to greater. If Jesus cares for and God cares for the lesser sparrow, how much more you and I? Notice in verse 30 he says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Does everyone see the term numbered there? That comes from arithmeto, and arithmeto, you can hear the root for arithmetic. That's where we get our term for arithmetic. Well, here it's in the passive voice, meaning this is a divine passive. 
So who has numbered all of our hairs on our head? God has. He has every single cell in your body memorized. He knows it all. And therefore, you and I can be absolutely certain that we're under his sovereign protection. You talk about different insurance plans. This is the greatest insurance plan of all time. You belong to him. And so that's why he says, again, at the very end of this pericope, so here's an inferential conjunction again. Therefore, what ought we do if God cares for the sparrows and you're greater than the sparrows? He says what? Do not fear. Do not fear. Why is that so important? Because you serve the one you fear. And if you don't fear what man can do or what the world can do, you're going to fear God. He says, do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Brothers and sisters, you and I are far more valuable than the animal kingdom. And so we can take that to heart that, yes, indeed, Jesus Christ, God himself is going to care for us. One thing I want to mention here is this passage is also very important for a biblical worldview. Here we see that animals are not as important as human beings. Human beings are far more valuable. As our culture becomes more pantheistic and panentheistic, what happens is the animal ends up becoming as valuable as the human. Why? Well, because the sparrow has divinity in it. So yeah, you may as well, but the sparrow does too. And so there's no distinction between man made in the image of God in the rest of creation. By the way, that's fundamental to the Nazi religion. Fundamental to the Nazi religion and the philosophers like Arthur Schopenhauer and others was that there really was no distinction between the animal and mankind. In the 1940s, the, in fact, in the 30s even, the German church capitulated. They said, we're willing to give up on Genesis chapters 1 through 9 that says, that God gave dominion to man over the rest of creation. But you know who wouldn't give up on Genesis 1 through 9? The Jews. Therefore, they had to go to the oven. Let me ask you, who is teaching today that there is no distinction between animals and human beings? Well, it's not the evangelical. All right, dear ones, some time ago, it's probably years now, I saw an article It was put out by the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, and it showed a family having a barbecue, and they're grilling chicken on their grill, and the title of the article was The Holocaust on Your Plate. That's what happens when you're a pantheist and you return God to nature. If God is in the sparrow or the chicken, then there's no distinction between the chicken and you. But if you believe there's a distinction between the creator and the creation— and you believe in the Bible, then you know that God made mankind alone in his image. And therefore, forevermore, we have inherent worth and value. Brothers and sisters, you and I have value because we're image bearers of God. And even more than that, we are children of God purchased by the blood of Christ. God is going to care for us. Okay, so with that, let me come to some applications. I have three of them for you here this morning. Number one, We must know that since Christ was falsely maligned, we will be falsely maligned as well. That's the way it is. And we have to know that as we go out into the world that it's not necessarily going to be a bed of roses for us. Number two, we must fear God rather than mankind. That's the core principle. Why? Because you always serve the one you fear. You fear something in the creation, you'll serve the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised. Number three, 
We must know that God cares for us and will provide for us all the way to glory. We can rejoice in that. Okay, so let's begin with number one. Dear ones, today Christ taught his disciples that since the world hated him, they would hate us as well. And there's a concept I want us to think about in our minds that the moment we believed in Jesus Christ, we were grafted in certainly to the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also their persecution. Bob was preaching one day, and he mentioned that the moment we believed, we were grafted into the persecutions, and it hit me like a thunderbolt. That's exactly right. So what I want us to think about is the moment we believed, we were grafted into the hatred of God's people that used to rest on Israel alone, but now rests on us as well. Why? Because we belong to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me build a case for you. Turn your Bibles. In fact, before you turn your Bibles, I got a verse to put up first. Matthew 24, 9. Let me read this to you. We're going to be coming to this, obviously, in our studies. Notice here, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, one thing we have to define here is who are the you in this passage? What I'm going to claim is that the you is not a reference to the 12 disciples, but rather it is a reference to Israelites who will become believers in the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. And so what's being stated is that they, in fact, are going to be hated by all the nations because of Christ's name. Now, as I say that, I am not claiming there is no application of the Olivet Discourse for the church. There certainly is. The application, however, is that the Olivet Discourse means to us, the church, that God is faithful. He's faithful to all of his promises. But what I want to do is prove to you that the you here is a reference to Israel. Turn your Bible six verses later to Matthew twenty-four fifteen. Let's define, as Bob was saying to us today in Sunday school, let's be good readers. Who is the you here? Well, let's look at it. Matthew twenty-four fifteen. It's the same you there. So whatever the you is in Matthew twenty-four fifteen, it's the same one in Matthew twenty-four nine. Matthew twenty-four fifteen. We'll read also verse sixteen. Hope you've turned there again. Matthew twenty-four fifteen. Same discourse. Notice Jesus says, "Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet." Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Okay, let's stop there. Notice Jesus is talking about the you, some group, that's going to see the abomination of desolation. Well, when is the abomination of desolation? Well, that's in the future 70th week of Daniel. It's at the midpoint. That is the time in which the Antichrist will set himself up in a restored temple and declare himself to be God. Is that something that happens during the church age? Or is that something that's going to happen in the future 70th week of Daniel? It's the latter. So then notice in verse 16, notice the application to that. Verse 16, Jesus says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Does everyone see that in verse 16? Notice Jesus doesn't say, Hey, if you're in the Colorado area, you should probably go to the Rockies. If you're in Minnesota, you should go to Buck Hill. No. He says those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. Why? Because the you is Israel. 
when he gets to Matthew 24, 36 through 42, then he's talking about the church that has been removed at the beginning of this time period. So my point in showing you all of this is Israel has always been hated by the nations. The Philistines tried to wipe them out before they tried to wipe the church out. In the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, according to Romans 11, you were grafted in. Grafted in, certainly to the promises of Israel, but also to their persecutions. That's what we have to see. Grafted in. Grafted in. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, grafted into the promises and the persecutions. Why? Because you belong to Messiah. You're his people. You're going to be a partaker of this glorious kingdom. And so, yes, at the end of the day, you and I belong now to the persecutions, not just the promises. In fact, that's why Jesus says in his great high priestly prayer, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Notice here in this great high priestly prayer, Jesus is reminding the Father that he had given them, given us his word. Dear ones, you and I were born of the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. Jesus Christ gave birth to you and I through the word. The spirit is the one who enabled us to believe the word. You and I were not born of men, but we were born of God. So in light of the fact that you and I are now adopted sons and daughters grafted into the promises, what happens? The world hates us. Why is this so important to know? If you go out into the world and you believe you're going to have your best life now and that everything is going to go splendidly because you're a believer in Jesus and you're always going to have a Cadillac in your garage stall, you're always going to have a chicken in the pot. Your children are always going to do well. Everything is going to go wonderfully. And then the persecution, the trials come. It creates a crisis. No, dear ones, let's resolve now in our minds that Christ has warned us in advance that the moment we believed, yes, we get the promises. And that's the most important thing because the promises are eternal. But we are also grafted in to the temporary persecutions. Okay, now let's go to our second point. And to me, this is the main point of this whole section. Today, Christ laid out that the key issue for living a faithful Christian life is that we would fear God, not man. At the end of the day, you're always going to fear, or I should say, you're always going to serve the one you fear. If you fear God, you'll serve him. If you fear man, you're going to serve him. I think that comes from the rich theology of Bob Dylan, who, uh, remember back in 1979, wrote a song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. You know, he's right. That's a biblical concept. It's exactly right. And I want to show you, though, a more reliable theological source, and that's Proverbs 1.7. Proverbs 1.7, notice Solomon said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What I want to do is pick apart this idea of fear. What does it mean that we fear the Lord? The term fear there, yara in Hebrew, is synonymous with the idea of phobeo, where you get the idea of phobia that Jesus is using in the Greek New Testament. So what does it mean that we fear the Lord? Well, I think there's two elements to it. The first is reverence, that there really is a reverence that we should have for God. I think about as a child, you have a reverence for your parents or your, your father or your mother or your grandparents as well. 
there's a reverence. Now, some people will leave it there, and they, they think that no literal fear can be part of fearing God. I disagree with that. The second part of this fear is a real fear that we are really scared of the wrath and the judgment that the Holy One of Israel can place upon us, that we really are terrified of that. There really is a genuine need to be scared of the wrath that God can pour upon human beings. Now, the point then is that if we have that kind of fear, this is the beginning of knowledge. Why? The reason it's the beginning of our worldview, a coherent worldview, is because now you know who you have to please. And the only way to please God is to come to faith in the Son. That's what we have to do. But if you don't have that wisdom of the fear of the Lord, you're a fool. Why? Because you're going to live your life for yourself and to please that which is in the creation rather than the creator. And for a while, it may go well, but eternally, it will not. You're going to head for judgment. And so that's why the fool is the one who doesn't have the fear of the Lord. They have the fear of something else in creation rather than the Lord. And so we see the same idea, for example, in Proverbs 14.27. It says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may avoid the snares of death. Notice here, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life, meaning it is the source of life. Why? Because being that you have the fear of the Lord, you're going to serve Him. You're going to come to faith in Christ, and therefore you're going to have the forgiveness of sins, and you're going to have the promise of everlasting life. That's what it leads to. And you're going to avoid the traps that lead to death. Now, remember, Proverbs does focus more on this life, but it does also refer to the life to come. And so I want to talk about the snare of following man. Notice here later in Proverbs 29, 25, it says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Dear ones, it's interesting. Notice the term that I have that you see in red there, the snare. The term in Hebrew there is mokesh. And so let me pull up my pointer here. The term snare there, mokesh, has to do with a trap that you would trap an animal with. So think of this example. Think about you're out in the wilderness, you need to survive, and you have to build the snare, this trap, the, the mokesh. So you're going to trap a fox. Well, in order to trap that fox, you're going to camouflage the trap. And so you're going to put some food in there, and the food is going to look good to the fox, and so he thinks as he comes to the trap, hey, this is great. This looks good. I'm going to get my belly full. Voila, my problems are over. But at the end of it, he's in a trap and he dies. That's the idea of living to serve man and to fear man. It looks good. You get the praises and the approval of mankind. You seem to be on the right side of the popular opinion in any given culture. You're not as hated. You're not controversial. You never have to stand for truth. It doesn't matter how you live. You don't have to have in any moral scruples. And everyone can love you. You're going to be the life of the party. You can live any way you want. It looks great. But at the end of the day, you're heading for destruction. That's why the fear of man never goes anywhere good. The idea that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 10 is that if you fear man, you're never going to confess Christ.
because you're going to be a man pleaser all your life. And it may work out good now, but at the end of the day, it leads to destruction. Because those who truly believe, what do they truly do? They truly confess Christ. That's the idea. Now, one thing I want to turn to is I want to ask the question, is there any wisdom that you and I can look to in the New Testament to say, okay, I have to fear God, not man, but is there any practical wisdom that we can glean from the New Testament about how we are to interact with the unbelieving world and how we interact with them alongside the fact that we have to honor God alone and to, to fear him alone? Well, I think there is. I want to share some of it with you. The first text I want to put up is 1 Peter 2.17. Now, remember Peter had to address the issue of Christian persecution in Asia Minor. It was horrific. In fact, some of them were duped into thinking the day of the Lord was there because the persecution was so significant. So notice what Peter instructs Christians to do. He says to them, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Okay, so notice the distinction. And again, this is important. There, there's various times in the Bible you'll see that we're to honor God, we're to love God, uh, etc. But here, Peter's focus is on what happens as we're out in the world in suffering. And so he gives us a nuance. So let's talk about them. Why are we, we to honor all people? The term honor there, tomao, is used here and then again here, honor the king. Well, the idea of honor has to do with giving value and respect. And so as we go out into the world, it's not as if you and I are just going to mistreat unbelievers. That's not the way to act or to treat them in a scoffing and mocking way. No, we are to honor or value them because they are image bearers of God as well. So important to our worldview is to remember that when people say everyone's a child of God, that's false. That is absolutely false. The only children of God are those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. So if you want to be a son or daughter of God, you have to be those who come to faith in Christ, and you are adopted in to the family. The only sons and daughters of God are those who belong to Jesus, period. We're not all children of God. It is exclusive to believers. Saying that, it is true to say that every human being, whether they're a believer or not, is made in the image of God. And as image bearers, they deserve respect. They deserve protection. That's the worldview that we are to have as we go out into the world. And I hope there are unbelievers that may come across this channel. I want you to know, if you're an unbeliever watching this, we care for you as Christians. We want nothing but good things. We want to live peaceful lives. We want to have dialogue. We want to honor you. We want to see that you do well in this world. That's the way we are to be. That's the kind of people we are to be. But notice then he transitions to the brotherhood, which is what? Fellow believers. We are to love them. Yeah, we honor everybody, but we have a special love for the brothers and sisters. This is the kind of love that leads us to bear one another's burdens. It's kind of like, think of your children. We can love or honor a lot of children in the world, but there's a special love that we have for our own. That's the idea with the brotherhood. That's a special love that we have for the family of God. But then notice he comes from that to fear God. It's not love God. We are to do that, certainly. It's not to honor God. It's to fear God. Why? Because you end up serving 
the one you fear. And that's important in light of persecution. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the king? Are you going to serve all people? Are you going to serve God? He says, fear God. He doesn't say fear the king, fear all people, fear the... No, you fear God. So let me talk about honor the king. The king deserves to be honored and valued for the position they have, for there's no authority except that which is from God. The very first sermon I ever gave was at Twin City Fellowship, right at this pulpit, where I talk about the role of government from Romans 13. I want to lay out a principle for you. The principle for Christians is that we go out into the world and the government tells us to do something that is at odds with God. There are times where we must follow God rather than man. So let me lay out the general principle. The general principle is that we as believers must submit to the governing authorities, Romans 13, 3, unless they prohibit us from doing something God commands or they command us to do something God forbids. If they do those things, we obey God rather than men. Let me lay out that for you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 5.29. Acts 5.29. Now, realize this is descriptive, but I think it's implied here in other prescriptive passages like 1 Peter 2.17. Acts 5.29. Please turn your Bibles there. And by the way, as you're turning there, we see examples all the way through the Scriptures of people who were righteous who didn't abide by what the king said. Think about the Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1. The Pharaoh commands the Hebrew midwives, if a baby boy comes out of a Hebrew woman, you kill it. Remember, you have Shipra and Pua, the two Hebrew midwives. They don't do that. In fact, they lie. They say, hey, these Hebrew women, they kick the children out so fast, we don't have time to kill them. They disobeyed the Pharaoh. Why? Because they feared God, not man. That's the idea. They feared God. Oh, yes, they honored Pharaoh. They didn't mock him, make fun of him. They didn't try to usurp him, but they didn't serve him. They served God. Acts 5.29, here you have the leadership of Israel, which is a governing body. They command the disciples, hey, you can't preach in Jesus' name. Whatever you do, you can do a lot of things, but you can't preach in Jesus' name. What do Peter and the apostles do with that? Well, notice it says, Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Why? Because, yes, they honored the leadership, but they feared God. They would only serve the Lord himself. Okay, let me have you turn to another example. The example I just showed you is where the people of God, the apostles, were prohibited from doing something God commands. Does God command us to preach in Jesus' name? Oh, yes. We are to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. We are to preach the word in season and out of season. Yes, we are to confess Christ. So that was an example of the government forbidding the disciples doing something God commanded. Let me give you an example where the government commands believers to do something that God prohibits, that is to serve other gods. Turn your Bibles to Daniel three fifteen through 18. Daniel three fifteen through 18. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, this is the famous example of where you have Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And these Jewish men will not honor the king. I shouldn't say they won't honor the king. They'll honor the king, but they will not bow their knee to the image 
that King Nebuchadnezzar has created. So what King Nebuchadnezzar did is he created a golden image. And any time you had these musical instruments that would play, everyone in his kingdom was to bow and worship this image that he made. Okay, so listen to how he interacts with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 3, 15 through 18. Notice verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar speaking to them. He says, Now if you are ready at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, trigen, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice, dear ones, they were honoring the king, but they were only fearing God. How did this work out for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, they are preserved through the fire. The fire did not consume them. Now, is that the way it always works out? Every time we obey God rather than men, God preserves us and protects us? No, sometimes we still die. In fact, remember Stephen, he died, didn't he, when he obeyed God rather than men in Acts 7. And yet, he, where is he now? Well, he's in the New Jerusalem. He's hooping it up. He's with the saints. He's with Christ. And that's the point of Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear he who can destroy the body or kill the body. Don't fear those who can destroy the body, but they can't do anything about the soul. Fear him alone who can destroy both body and soul and hell. Brothers and sisters, do you know that there's going to be a gospel that's given even during the tribulation period in the future? Yes, I believe the church will be raptured prior to the last seven years. But during that last seven years, the gospel is going to go out and there will be people who will be saved. One of the ways the gospel goes out is by an angel that is going to fly in mid-heaven. Listen to the message of this gospel that he gives. Revelation 14, 6 through 7. Here's the angel. It says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Notice the gospel he has is what? You fear God. Because if you fear God and you're living then, then you don't take the mark of the beast. Why? Because you always serve the one you fear. Then it's going to be the choice you serve Antichrist or Christ. You serve Christ because you fear Christ or you serve Antichrist because you fear Antichrist. Brothers and sisters, what about you today as you go out the door? Who do you really fear? Because whether or not you are going to confess Christ and have him upon your lips with boldness all the days of your life is dependent upon whom you really fear. If you fear man, you'll shrink back. But if you fear God, you'll confess Christ all of your days. Now, before you go out, I want to leave you with some great news. This is the third point, and that is God will care for us. And this care that he has for us isn't just temporary, it's an eternal caring all the way to glory. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 5, 6. Listen to what God has promised us. 1 Peter 5, 6. Please turn your Bibles there. 
What I want you to see is that in the midst of the trials and the persecutions, you and I are promised by God that he will provide for us. Now, this provision is ultimately geared to getting us to glory, to getting us to the resurrection. So if you say, well, wait a minute, what about Stephen? He died. How did God provide for him? Well, where is he? Is he in the New Jerusalem? Is he heading for the resurrection? Well, absolutely is. By the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're dead too. Where are they? They're in the New Jerusalem. They're in heaven. And so we have to look at the big plan. The big plan is believers are going to be cared for all the way to glory. Notice what it says, 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. What time? At the coming of the day of the Lord. That's the proper time. Notice now, 1 Peter 5, 7, on the screen, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Brothers and sisters, all of us were born into this world with various bents and talents. We are also gifted by the Spirit with various gifts. And so some of us are more prone to anxiety than others. I'm a professional worrier. I was actually hired to be a professional worrier. Do you know as a pilot, every time you take off, you're going to have an engine failure? Every time. And you're always prepared for it. You're always ready for it. And you do not want to fly with a pilot that says, oh, nothing's ever going to go wrong. I'm not going to prepare for any failures. This thing was built by men. No, you want to be prepared for failure. So that's the way I'm wired. Let me tell you a story. I have a brother who I adore. He's five years older than me. He's a believer. He doesn't get worried about anything, and he's smart. He's smart enough to be worried, but he doesn't worry. He's an aerospace engineer, and I never forget, we're driving up to our cabin one time. It's me, my dad, my brother. Great time together. My dad and I are talking about all this type of prepper stuff. Well, what if the electrical grid goes down? Well, then what if the crops fail? And what if this? We're doing all this, and my brother's sitting in the front seat, just driving away. And after my dad and I go through all the different scenarios, my brother says, if that all happens, I'm going to the Holiday Inn. He wasn't worried at all. That's just the way he's wired. So we're all wired differently. I understand that. But dear brothers and sisters, what we have to know is whatever worries we have in this life, we can cast them all upon the Lord. And for some of us, it's going to be more difficult than others. But that's what we have to learn to do. Why? Because we serve the Jesus, the great God and Savior who said this to us. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Are they not just a dime a dozen? Of course they are. And he says, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Brothers and sisters, as we go out the door, we don't have to fear anything that the world can do. We don't fear anything in all of this creation. We fear God the creator alone. And as we continue to do so, let's be those then that continuously confess Christ from our lips with boldness and love. That's the great high calling from this passage. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do care for us, that you care for your children, the brothers and sisters that are adopted and grafted in through Christ. We thank you for this care. We thank you that you're bringing us to glory, the resurrection, the glorious kingdom that will be upon the earth, headquartered in Jerusalem. We long for the day that the nations come up and they worship you and give you honor and glory. We do pray, Heavenly Father, we'd be those who remember the great kingdom 
we'd remember that we don't have to fear anything in this creation, that we would fear you alone. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in light of that, you would give us the confession of Christ upon our lips, that we continue to confess him all the days of our lives. We also pray for opportunity with the loved ones that we have in our lives, people that we love and we care for, our family, our friends, our co-workers. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd give us the words to say, that you'd prepare their hearts, that you'd regenerate their hearts, that they would come to faith and be partakers of your glorious kingdom as well. Give us opportunity and confession upon our lips. We pray that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.